This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today's Tuesday, June 14th. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today, the Athletic Zone, Ted Nguyen. Ted, how you doing, man? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Appreciate you doing this. Always good to chat about some scheme stuff, and I'm really excited to have you as a part of our weekly mailbag this week. Yeah, I'm excited to get started. Let's do this. So I solicited questions from you guys. Sincerely appreciate you giving us some stuff to chew on, including some, you know, it's Ted's here. I mean, his Twitter handle is little, literally FB Film Analysis, so we need to get some film analysis going here. So here we go. Max Ra- Rumison, Rumison? Max Rumison is what we're going with says, big fan of the show, saw your tweet about a scheme-focused episode and thought I'd ask about my favorite team's defensive scheme, the Browns. With the drama surrounding the offense, it seems to have gotten lost in the shuffle that the Browns' D played great D down the stretch, even with the offense putting them in bad positions. For example, Packers' game on Christmas, 21 of 24 points came after Baker interceptions. Further following the Cardinals' game in Week 6, they gave up more than 26 points in a game once, 45 versus the Pats, let's ignore that one, even with a struggling offense. Can you run through what changed schematically that helped the defense improve through the year? And what is your expectation of this defense in the next year with most of the key personnel and coaches returning? I wanted to hear what you had to say about this, Ted, because I I dug into some of the numbers and I watched a little bit. But I'm wondering if you saw anything with the Browns over the course of the year that you thought really made a huge difference. All right. So here's what I'll say about this. I looked back at a lot of the numbers associated with the Browns and Nothing changed drastically from a schematic perspective. So if you look at the way that the Browns approached their defense, they were kind of in their own territory when it came to some things they did. No one used more quarters on first down last year than the Browns. The last place Joe Woods was before coming to Cleveland was in San Francisco, where they kind of transitioned from that more Seattle-based cover three defense to a lot of quarters on early downs. I mean, and you, if you look at the Jets, they did a decent amount of that last year. And, you know, Salas kind of made that transition. Joe Woods did a lot of the same stuff. They played 93 snaps of quarters on first down, which was by far the most in the NFL. There was a bigger gap between the Browns and the number two team in the league than there was between number two and number 11. That's how drastic they were in terms of leading the league in quarters on early downs. It was about 20% of the time. That happened over the course of the season. That didn't really change. On third down, they played a little bit more man coverage over the second half of the year, but there wasn't anything like, oh, there was this huge philosophical shift in their success. So over the first half of the season, they were 20th in dropback EPA. So like our listener points out here, they were a lot better in the second half of the season. They were eighth in dropback EPA from weeks 10 through 18. But I think that was more about just not giving up huge plays than it was anything schematic because their success rate in the first nine weeks of the season against dropbacks was sixth. So that gap, where usually when you have a huge EPA and you're doing pretty good in success rate, that's big, big plays. Think about how many coverage busts you saw from the Browns in the first half of the season. That started going away in the second half of the season. They were third in dropback success rate and eighth in dropback EPA from weeks 10 through 18. So I think instead of just having it be some huge philosophical shift, it's just a defense getting less leaky over the course of the season. And that's not surprising at all. I talked to someone there last year, and they said that it's a certain point, maybe it was during the bye or at some point during the year, they started having more walkthroughs as a team on defense just to work on communication stuff. 
Because when you are introducing a lot of new defensive personnel, which they were, John Johnson, Troy Hill, Greg Newsome, a lot of new guys on the back end, JOK, you're going to have some of those communication issues. So it's not surprising that that happened. And that's what I think really went down, is that they were communicating better. They were giving up fewer big plays. You know, John Johnson really settled into his role. Newsom played a little bit more in the slot over the final month of the season. Just the natural progression you see from a group of new defenders playing with each other and finding their role. So in terms of last season, that's the observation that I made. Ted, I don't know if you saw anything from the Browns over the course of the year that you felt like was a big change, but I don't think there really was anything substantial. Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, when you are playing so much man match coverage, it involves a ton of communication and you're, you know, switching, uh, you know, you're passing off a man to another guy. Uh, Sometimes it's like playing cover zero, you know, so if you have a bust in those type of coverages, it can lead to wide open guys and huge plays. So I think just over the course of the season, getting used to each other, being able to communicate like you talked about. Um, and, and just really getting comfortable with those coverages and, and passing guys off and, and that sort of deal, uh, you're going to give up less big plays. And when you give up less big plays, obviously, you know, the number is going to start to look better. I'm pretty sure if you look at the week one tape from 2020 and the week one tape from 2021, the only two Browns starting defenders to be in both of those lineups were Miles Garrett and Denzel Ward. That's it. That's a ton of turnover on that side of the ball this year get everybody back. Everybody is coming back. They re-signed Jadevian Clowney. Corner is really the only position where you might have a little bit of turnover. Troy Hill was traded back to the Rams. We'll see how those spots end up shaking out. And you don't have to have a good answer right now. They could, as we're going to talk about a little bit later, use some more three safety looks with Delpit Johnson and Ronnie Harrison, who's also back. They could move Greg Newsom into the slot like they did late in last season, have Martin Emerson, one of their rookies, play a little bit on the outside. Greedy Williams is still on this team. They've got a bunch of options on the back end. On the front end, really, the interior of the defensive line is the only place where they're going to have a decent amount of turnover, and that group wasn't awesome last year. So I have pretty big expectations from this group this year. Year two with the same defensive coordinator, year two together, and they've got pretty decent depth at really important spots on the back end. I wouldn't be surprised at all if this was a top 10 defense. I don't know how you feel about that. No, oh, yeah, I agree. If you cut down those big plays and you have good communication in the secondary with that pass rush with with Miles Garrett and uh, I struggle saying his name, but JOK coming into his second year, you know, he's a big time playmaker. So I think uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Browns were uh, a, a top ten defense, like you said. He's so many young players, so many potential ascending players. It's a really good group, and we haven't talked much about it because of obviously everything going on with the offense, which I think is what we should spending be spending most of our time and energy on. But this defense quietly has a chance to be really, really good this year, in my opinion. All right, let's get to our next question here. It's our first voicemail. Kent, you want to cue this up for us? Hey, Robert, big fan since the Grantland days. Uh, this is Garrick from Texas, longtime Chargers fan. And I'm, I have a weird question about scheme uh, when it comes to base defense as we know base defense has moved towards more nickel sets just as the general go-to but i'm wondering specifically about the evolution of using three safeties on the field more and more uh i can see like the chargers drafting players like jt woods in the third round and thinking maybe we go into more of a three safety look as our base defense with derwin playing a sort of hybrid safety linebacker role 
on those uh, first down run plays to sort of help shore up our run defense while JT and Adderley play deep safety roaming coverage. Uh, thank you, as always. Uh, you guys do great stuff. Uh, yeah, appreciate it. The timing on this is very good, Ted, because you recently talked about this in one of your mailbags, and the draft gave us a lot of breadcrumbs as it relates to this specific topic. So what do you think about the future of three safety looks and specifically with the chargers and how they're emblematic of that shift? Yeah. You know, I think obviously we keep moving towards more of a, more of a passing league. So you're going to see teams uh, put more of an emphasis on stopping the pass. And I think that we're going to start seeing more three safety looks because defenses started doing that in college with Iowa state's system, uh, being kind of popularized. And when you look at the draft, you see teams that already had two good safeties adding a third safety early in the draft. You know, um, the the Ravens added Kyle Hamilton to their safety uh, group that they already had with Chuck Clark and Marcus Williams. Uh, the the Bengals drafted Dax Hill, Dax Hill to uh, add to Jesse Bates and Vaughn Bell. And their defensive coordinator, Lou Anamaro, uh How do you say his last name again? Anarumo. Anna Rumo uh, even talked about using more three safety packages and, you know, Chargers uh, drafted JT Woods, who I really liked uh, coming into the draft. And Brandon Staley said um, in, in the press conference after that they wanted a guy that could play deep so they could move uh, Derwin James into the box or move him around. And I think, you know, he'll be used as a nickel, kind of like what Staley did with Jalen Ramsey. Uh, um, you'll see him play some dime linebacker at, at times, I'm sure. Um, I think just getting more safeties involved because of their versatility uh, is beneficial for defenses. They could cover, they could do different things, uh, but at the same time, they're also a uh, good tackler. So you're not losing a ton in run defense and, and in the tackling department. Um, so I think that's mostly how we're going to see safe, the third safety being used as kind of a, a extra nickel and maybe a dime linebacker at times. And, you know, maybe we'll see some teams get creative with three safety usages like Iowa State, and then you know, starting those three deep safety shells and kind of shift coverages and make things tougher for defenses. Uh, I make things tougher for quarterbacks to read. Uh, but I think mostly just getting that extra body in the field that can uh, tackle and be a good run defender, but also add to your pass coverages uh, is why we're going to see more uh, three safety packages. I want to talk about that and moving into the nickel and the benefits that gives you, but talk a little bit more about the Iowa State approach. So what would they, what were they doing with their three safety looks that was different than maybe some other teams in college that some NFL teams could look at and maybe steal from? Well, they, they would just start with a three deep safety shell. So you'll see, uh, you know, three safeties back uh, deep and they'll kind of shift their coverages so they could play cover two from that and have two deep safeties play half and that middle safety kind of play that whole where traditionally, uh, you know, a middle line, linebacker would play, or they could play cover three uh, with three safeties playing deep and the corners playing up in the flats, or they can have two safeties kind of play the hook underneath and have the corners drop into the deep third. So they just do a bunch of different things where it, it just makes it a little harder for or for quarterbacks to understand where these defensive backs are going to be. As it relates to the NFL and what we've seen over the last few years, I'm fascinated by the changing body types that we're seeing in the slot now. You know, Cooper Cup being the best example, the ultimate example. He's a 6'2 dude who can run routes like a typical slot receiver, but you can use him in combination blocks like a tight end, which the, the Rams did last year. He's a unicorn. He's in his own category when it comes to this. But you see other players. A.J. Brown spent a third of his snaps in the slot last year, 33% as a 220-pound guy. 
I think the Falcons will use Drake London in the slot a decent amount this year with Kyle Pitts on the outside. The way the Packers use their slot receivers, where you have Alan Lazard playing in that spot a lot. Zach Pascal, favorite on this show. There's the power slot idea becoming more and more prevalent. Chris Godwin is an example of that. If you've got a 215-pound receiver in that spot who wants to hit people, putting a 180-pound corner in the nickel on early downs, you're asking yourself for trouble. It's not the most important thing, but it's a matchup advantage for the offense if you can play an 11 personnel and knock that guy around if nickel defense is base defense now. If you answer those looks with a 205-pound Jalen Ramsey or a 210-pound safety, now you're fighting fire with fire and you don't have to worry about that as much anymore. You can still play pass defense because you've only got two linebackers on the field, but now your nickel defender is not a matchup problem for their supersized nickel player as a receiver. So I just think this is a natural answer to what we're seeing from the growing evolution, literally, from players in the slot on offense. Yeah, and it's not just an advantage in a passing game. You know, got the reason why Chris Godwin and Cooper Cup are so effective in the slot is because they're plus run blockers too. Yeah. So, you know, when you have guys that could run block like tight end, almost like tight ends like those guys, and you're gonna ha- you you're asking your 180 pound nickel to kind of you know get into a run fit, that's an advantage for the offense too. So when you have that bigger body in there, you don't give up as much in in the run defense department as well. All right, next one here. Tyler Faber says, we often hear how the most effective offenses scheme their wide receivers open. Andy Reid, Matt LaFleur, Kyle Shanahan, Josh McDaniels, etc. They all have rub routes, crossers, clear outs, and all the route designs you two show and explain well in your articles and podcasts. How much does a great scheme still need a great receiver to open up other guys? This is something we'll probably learn a lot from the Packers this season. If you scheme receivers open, why is receiver value ballooning instead of falling off? Similar to running back value, and everyone agreed running back blocking schemes is more important than who's in the backfield. Recent Super Bowl teams like the Patriots, Seahawks, Ravens, and Eagles all won without a tier one receiver. So thanks for considering my question. I've learned so much from you guys. Ted's breakdowns are some of my favorite pieces on the internet. Really appreciate that, Tyler. What do you think about this? I, I wouldn't say the best schemers scheme receivers open often. I mean, rug wraps certainly help against man-to-man situations, uh, but we're seeing a lot you know, of teams use condensed formations to avoid press. I think the best coaches know how to move their players around and create one-on-one situations and create mismatches and when you're able to do that you still need your guy to win on a consistent basis that's why you need that guy that you know could just win those one-on-ones win those uh 50 50 situations and and you know there are times when you just need your receiver to beat a good corner um at, you know as we've seen time and time again so good schemers will create more opportunities but at the end of the day you need that that guy that guy that could just win those matchups there's only so much a defense can do. There are only so many guys you can answer a problem with. There's only so many ways you can line up. So the traditional way of and the need for having a true number one receiver is in a three by one set. If you have a guy that's isolated and they're not going to truly double team him, you're in trouble. <laughs> like if you have that guy, you're in trouble. So and that's how it typically was for a very long time. And then when you see teams truly double a guy, that's when things open up. Because if you have three mm-hmm. receivers on the other side and you have to keep that safety on this lone receiver side over the top, that's not enough guys on the other side to defend three players. Somebody's going to be open eventually. So that's hugely important. And then like you said, even if we're not lined up in those traditional three-by-one formations anymore, if you have a true number one receiver that you think can play from the slot 
and you can't really press him and you can't really double team him, then that guy's going to consistently win matchups. There are plenty of scenarios where you're going to be able to scheme guys open with rub routes and all of that. But eventually, similar to what we talk about with quarterbacks on this show, you need a receiver who's going to get you a bucket. You need a guy who's just going to be able to win a one-on-one matchup at some point. And that's why when you watch a guy like Devontae Adams, even though everyone in the building knows mm-hmm. he's going to get the ball in certain situations, there's still nothing a defense can really do about it because he's going to win that win on one-on-one matchup so consistently. Yeah, and you, you can't double a receiver on every snap, especially on early no. downs too. So, you know, that that's one of the, the ways that Adams get the ball so much is they know when they're going to get that one-on-one and they're going to go to him every single time. And, uh, you know, interestingly, you know, now that now that you're seeing more, like you talked about earlier, you're seeing more number one guys playing the slot too. So it, it's, it's a little different than how it used to be where the number one guys are always outside. Um, the Rams are able to do a good job of isolating Cup in those uh, choice routes and he, you know, destroys guys on those choice routes, and which is why, you know, you, you want those number one guys that could really destroy matchups like he, he does. And that when you watch guys like that, there's something to be said. There's so much to be said about just having a feel for the way to attack open space and the way to change what you're trying to do based on the way the teams are playing against you. What Cooper Cup can do based on coverage structures and altering routes in the moment and the way that Adams can do some of that stuff where even if the defense is right, those guys make it wrong so often by the way they adjust things or the way that they can play back shoulder balls. Another really good example is the way the Bills offense changed when Stephon Diggs got there. Mm -hmm. The amount of hitches and comebacks Stephon Diggs caught in single coverage because there's just no good answer. If you want to play over the top and you're worried about that vertical push, he's going to have everything underneath the entire game. There's nothing schemed up about that. That's just the guy being really, really good at the position. And when you can drop that sort of presence into your offense, there's really no overstating how important that is to allowing other guys to crush you as well because of the attention somebody like that takes up. Yeah, exactly. But you know, the, uh, an interesting thing is there is starting to become a divide, you know, it, with teams um, that are willing to pay those number one guys a lot of money and the teams that are, are more willing to look to the draft because of, you know, all these good wide receiver classes coming up. There's absolutely something to be said about the surplus at the position. I think having mm-hmm. a really, really good receiver is as important as it's ever been. But there mm-hmm. might be more good receivers than there have ever been. So I don't think it's a devaluing the position and their impact by saying you could move on from that guy and have it be the right move. I just think that there it's a supply and demand issue more than that. Yeah, but it, it's, it's it'll be interesting to see which teams are willing to pay those you know really top flight number one guys those huge contracts and which teams are willing just to move on because we're starting to see that kind of play out. All right, Jake Bond says, how difficult is it to transition a veteran team to a new defensive scheme? Example, the Vikings are transitioning from a decade of Zimmer-style scheme to a Fangio scheme. Do you keep some of the stuff that worked really well, i.e. the Zimmer pressure packages? What do you think about this? How difficult do you think it is for guys that have learned one way of defense, a la Harrison Smith or some of the other guys in that defense to change midstream or after eight to ten years of learning the same thing? I think it just depends on how big the coverage shift is going to be. You know, like we talked about the Browns, how they had to get used to uh, playing those match coverages and needing that time together. 
and limiting those explosive plays. Uh, but, I, you know, for the Vikings example specifically, I don't think it's going to be too different of a transition. You know, Zimmer played a ton of quarters and man match coverages. And uh, that Fangio type of scheme involves a lot of uh, man match uh, coverages and a lot of split safety looks. So I don't think it's going to be that different. Um, and also you have to just you have to think about personnel, too. You know, if you're you have a team that's used to playing a ton of zone and you know, spent years collecting all these uh, zone coverage guys. And then all of a sudden you're going to a more man-based scheme. That's going to take a while to uh, transition as far as personnel and teaching, teaching your guys. I would say the bigger transition for the Vikings instead of coverages is going to be what they're doing up front. Yep. I mean, they were a four man front for so, so long. And now you're moving to a world where they're going to be more multiple up front. A guy like Zadarius Smith is a perfect example of bringing a guy into the fold who's going to really change the dynamic of what you look like up there. So I think it's more about their front structures and how they play that stuff than it's going to be on the back end. Yeah, it's going to be a transition moving to odd space uh, odd space defense. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at what happened to the Chargers last year, you know, they were a single gap team under Gus Bradley for yep. so long. And all of a sudden you move to this Brandon Staley gap in half. And, and there's definitely a talent issue there too, but you know, it, it was a difficult transition for them, uh, to say the least. How long do you think it takes a defense to really settle in? Do you think that you can have a pretty big philosophical shift in one year and have it click immediately for a team? Or do you think it takes longer than that? I think it depends on personnel as well. You know, like if you don't have the right personnel to uh, to run the system that that you want, then... You know, you might not even you might not ever get to a place that you want in that year until you're able to get uh, better personnel. Uh, but generally, I think you know when you have good coaching, you see those defenses start to really pick things up towards the end of the year. So I think it can be done uh, within a year, and we, we've seen examples of defenses really starting to gel together uh, towards the end of the season. The Rams from 2020 are obviously the best example of a team that mm-hmm. year one of a new coordinator just just took off like a rocket. I think that might be an outlier. We do have some examples. So the the Rams from 2020 are a really good example. Go back to the early days of Fangio in the NFL. I guess the early days of this stretch. I mean, he was with the Saints in like the 80s. But coming back to the NFL about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. The Niners were 17th in defensive DVOA in 2010, the year before Harbaugh and Fangio got there. They were third in 2011, which was their first year there. Weirdly, 2011 is a couple examples of this. The uh, Texans that year, that was the first year of Wade Phillips in Houston. They went from 30th in defensive DVOA in 2010 to 7th that year. And what's more impressive about that is that was a lockout year. So that they didn't have a full offseason to put all that stuff in, and you had those teams taking a huge, huge jump. The Seahawks went from 29th in 2010 to 10th in 2011. A couple pretty important guys were, were drafted that year that ended up playing on that team. So personnel, scheme change, we have seen it in the past. I tend to think it takes at least a year and into the back half of that year, just like we talked about, because... Even back then, when you're looking at some of these teams, more spot drop zone. I mean, just the amount of communication that you have mm-hmm. to have now because of all of the match coverage the teams are playing. I just think that the Rams, 
it's easy to look at them and say, well, we could do that too. If we just bring in this scheme, we'll have this huge change. I just don't think it's that easy. They have Aaron, Ron- or Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey. Most teams do not. And it's, I don't think it's that much more complicated than having those two guys. You, you need that to have that microwave success that a team like that had. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think if you do want to look for an example like that, look for a team that has good defensive personnel, but bad coaching. And as soon as they bring in a good coach, you know, they'll probably take off that year. All right, Kent, can you queue up our next voicemail here? Hey, Robert, uh, Nate, Mike, everyone over there, uh, Lindsay, really love the show. Uh, addicted to the podcast, which is goodness. This is, uh, this is Mike from Miami. A quick follow-up question to a mailbag question from a previous week where a caller asked, what is the worst quarterback you could win a Super Bowl with? And I think you misinterpreted the question, honestly. I think he was saying, if you are, I don't know, pick the team, uh, Kansas City, Buffalo, what have you, a top echelon team, could you win with Daniel Jones? Could you win with Baker Mayfield? Could you win with, I don't know, take your pick, uh, Tua? I, I think you get the gist. So I think that is how I interpreted the question. And uh, if I did get it wrong, uh, well, here's a new one for you, new twist on the same one. So thanks a lot, and hopefully uh, – uh, I'll hear this answered on on an upcoming mailbag. All right, I did. We did answer this as, in terms of guys on teams right now. That okay, like Jalen Hurts and James Winston for this year were a couple of our our answers. On a more theoretical level, I would take this a different direction. So talking more about history and just guys that we've seen, who do you think is the worst quality of starting quarterback that if everything else broke right for you could potentially win a Super Bowl? Uh, Nick Foles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad answer, actually. But yeah, he played I mean, extremely well yeah, during that stretch. Yeah. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. But, well, I, you know, I've kind of thought about this. And you look at Jimmy Garoppolo, who almost won a Super Bowl with the Niners and got into the championship game last year. Then you look at Jared Goff, who made the Super Bowl with the Rams, but, you know, just got completely shut down by that. Patriots defense so those guys can you get get you to the big game but as we've seen when you know it it comes down to the you know fourth quarter and you need that guy to get you a bucket they just have failed on a consistent basis so I think you need a guy that is a little bit above the class of you know the Jimmy Garoppolo's and uh, Jared Goff so you know I think if you put Derek Carr into um you know, the Niners team, that Niner, I think they could win a Super Bowl. You know, he, he can't, he doesn't win you. He can't get, can't you get, get a bucket as consistently as a guy like Patrick Mahomes or, or uh, Josh Allen, but he can do that at times. He's good in the fourth quarter. So I think that is kind of the baseline as the, um, you know, quarterback that's not quite top tier that can get, win you a Super Bowl. Jimmy Garoppolo was the first name that I thought about. Because it was that 2019 team. If you're look, we're talking about everything else going right, that 2019 team had a lot going for it. Their defense was incredible. You have the perfect play caller. You have some skill position guys that can create something out of nothing. And they were two, three plays away from winning that Super Bowl. So I still think a couple bounces of the ball, he's good enough in those exact circumstances to win you one. So I think he's clearly in that tier. Like if you get again a couple more breaks, he can win you one. I'm going one step further down, and I'm going if we're going back in time a little bit. The 2018 Bears, if a couple other things go right, 
is Mitchell Trubisky good enough with that defense to potentially win you a couple more games? Maybe not. And But one more year back in time, Blake Bortles in 2017 with that Jaguars team goes to the AFC Championship game. I think if you have a lightning in a bottle defense, like the best defense in the league, buzzsaw dominant, can slow down pretty much anybody they play, which very rarely happens. There's like one or two of those defenses a year. Maybe you could have a guy in that Trubisky Bortles on a rookie contract tier of quarterbacks and you get lucky on your way to winning a Super Bowl. I think a guy like that can do it, but you literally need everything to go your way. And we have not seen that happen in a long time. Yeah, see, I think we're looking at this a little differently. You're, you're looking at it as like every break has to, you know, happen for this guy to win. I'm thinking like, you know, maybe this guy could win it, win this for you four out of ten times or, or, or something like that. So, and I think that Jimmy Garoppolo is right in that range for that to potentially mm-hmm. happen. And maybe one step down from there. But once in 15 tries, could the 2018 Bears have won the Super Bowl with Metro Trubisky? Maybe. Could the 2017 Jaguars have won one with Blake Bortles? Maybe. So I do think that you can have a pretty bad quarterback if everything else goes right, but there's a reason we haven't seen that happen in a long time. Yeah, I mean, you need a top-flight defense, top-flight running game, and and a lot of luck to to break your way. Yeah, that's why building a team with with that model Mm -hmm. in mind is not the right way to do it, but it can happen to you maybe once. Mm -hmm. All right, next question here. Our friend Bobby Peters asks, what McDaniels Patriots concepts are you most excited for the Raiders to use in 2022, Ted? Yeah, I thought about this question and Bobby Peters writes, he writes these fantastic guides that, you know, breaks down all these team, uh, team plays. So you should check out his, his Twitter and his, uh, his Amazon where all these books are listed. If you're interested in that, I'm trying to see if there's one right in front of me or not. I usually have at least like two of them in this room, but unfortunately. I got a, I got a few in that uh, bookshelf right yeah, behind me. Yeah, they're all right in my basement right now. He just put out one about the Browns. It's really, really interesting. I highly encourage you guys to go check those out. Anyway. Yeah, so, so I, I thought about this question, and you know, I don't think it's one or two concepts that I'm really excited to play, uh, to see to see um, happen, but I think uh, just seeing Carr in an actual system um, is exciting to me because you know I think John Gruden is the best offensive coordinator he's ever had. But Gruda's philosophy is more like we're going to run these 200, you know, we're going to go into a game with these 200 plays in our game plan and see what works. And, you know, to, to me, that there's a there's certain things that are good about that philosophy. But I, I, I believe in more of a Sean McVay type of philosophy where we're going to run our plays and we're going to have our constraint plays in case the defense takes this away. And I, I like that philosophy better. And, you know, the Patriots obviously are very systematic in what they do. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why the Raiders had troubles adjusting in some some of the second halves of games under that Gruden um, era is because they weren't systematic enough. So uh, I'm really excited to see Carr play in the system, which I think really fits his skill set. Also, um, you know, we, we've talked, a, I think whenever um, teams end up getting two tight ends, we always harken back to, you know, what the Patriots <laughs> did with Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez, but we never really see it play out. Uh, the way that we think it, it would play out like it, it did back then. Uh, but I really think the Raiders have two of the better t- uh, tight ends in the league with Darren Waller and Foster Moreau. Uh, so I'm excited to see if, you know, they could really 
implement a two tight end set that is is effective and um, is kind of like that Gronk and Hernandez uh, type of system they had back then. One of the play he mentioned, and I think this is what I'm more interested in and more excited about. The play he mentioned is called Haas Juke, which is a, one of the famous empty plays that the Patriots run. And it's you have hitches on the outside, seams on the inside, and then the guy, the number three receiver, runs a little juke route. So it's mm-hmm. a little stutter over the over the middle of the field. The cool thing about that play is the Patriots run forever. A lot, of, pretty much everyone runs it, but the Patriots have famously done it. They've had so many different guys on that juke route, depending on what their personnel was. Aaron Hernandez ran that at times. Wes Welker ran that at times. And the coolest part about what the Raiders skill position group looks like right now, they can do that again. Darren Waller can do that if they want him to. Devontae Adams is really, really good from the slot if you want Hunter Renfro to do that. So that's what I can't wait is to wait to see. Is it where how are they going to use these guys and play? with expectations positionally with some of them and where they're all going to line up because the Patriots did such a good job of that where you had five spots and you could change out the pieces depending on who was on the team and what sort of matchups you wanted to exploit. And now the Raiders potentially have three plus matchup guys that they could use in all of those different ways. And I think that's going to be really fun to watch. Yeah, and it's not just that play that you know has that kind of option route. That the Patriot system has a ton of different option routes, ton of different uh, route conversion uh, type of uh, routes. Um, or I'll say it again: they have a ton of different uh, route conversions in their offense that are built in. Um, and you know, to to run those plays, you need guys that understand leverage, understand coverages, and you have three guys on that team that really does that well. And Devontae Adams, Hunter Renfro. And Darren Waller. So it's going to be really fun to see once they could really get everything together. The value we can argue about till we're blue in the face, giving up all of those picks and then paying him a top of the market deal as a 29, 30 year old receiver. But for the exact reason you said, going to get arguably the smartest receiver in the entire league and Devontae Adams and dropping in that into the system even if other teams might look at the surplus of receivers available in the draft and say, oh, we're going to pay this guy two million bucks a year. I'd much rather take my chances in the draft over paying one receiver $28 million. Think about how many young receivers we have seen drown in the Patriot system because they mm-hmm. can't figure that shit out. So a veteran who understands all of that, I think is arguably more important and more crucial to what the Patriots want to do and how that system works than really any other offense in the NFL, arguably. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. And, and I don't think Adams has ever had two other receivers as talented as Renfro and, and Darren Waller playing. Not when he's been the, the clear time. number one, clearly. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's I mean, when Jordy Nelson was with him, but that was at a different point in Devontae Adams' career. Yep. All right, next one here. Alex Pennington says, I've been wondering what all the coaches on a staff actually do. I understand what an offensive line coach does, but what about a quality control coach or an offensive and defensive coordinator who doesn't call plays? Quality control coach, we've talked about a decent amount on this show. You're really just gathering information and you know breaking down certain types of tape and and helping put together certain packages and you know binders of stuff for coaches over the course of the day. You can ask Nate all about that if you ever want to. I'm interested in the side of this with an offensive or defensive coordinator who doesn't call plays. What is your sense of the, what role those guys have day to day? Cause I have an answer, but I'm curious what you think. 
As a side note on the quality control coach, I, I was at the Niners minicamp, and one of my buddies who was a quality control coach there, he was running routes against the uh, <laughs> against the starting against the starting defense and catching passes from uh, Kyle Shanahan. So uh, there's that part of the job responsibility. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as the the coordinators that don't call plays, um, just because they don't, you know. Uh, calling plays isn't just like you're thinking, you know, it's not like Madden where you have the whole playbook available to you while you're calling plays on each down. You know, they're during the week, you're coming up with plays that you'll call in certain situations. So, you know, in the second along and, you know, with this much time left or whatever, you know, we have this list of plays we're going to call. And I think the coordinator uh, that doesn't call plays can help put that game plan together and create help create those lists for uh, the court, uh, for the coach who's actually going to call the plays. And meetings are a huge part of mm-hmm. this. A lot of play calling head coaches don't run offensive meetings. So in, in those situations, like Cleveland, for example, you know, Alex Van Pelt handles the offensive meetings for the most part, and even though Stefanski calls the plays. So you have a ton of examples of that all over the place with teams. You know, I think Kyle Shanahan is another really good example. He comes into the process fairly late when it comes to game planning. I remember talking to Kyle Juszczyk about it a couple of years ago where you know, maybe Wednesday, they'll have Kyle come in and be more a part of the offensive process and a part of that dialogue where the offensive coaches outside of him will handle it until that point. So you have plenty of examples of this, of coordinators around the league who don't call plays, but ultimately are in charge of the offense for multiple days during the week, including some of the meetings. All right, next one here, Aaron Poultman asks, there have been a number of examples of position groups that have had their own nickname, Legion of Boom, the Purple People Eaters, the Steel Curtain, the New York Sack Exchange, are all examples. What current position group or unit do you think is most deserving of a nickname and what should it be? I'm terrible at naming things, so I'm not going to suggest many nicknames here, but let's come up with a group that we feel like deserves a nickname the most. Of any position group in the league, who do you think most deserves their own nickname? I don't know if this group really deserves it because they haven't really played together quite yet, but I, I think the Dolphins skill players who are ridiculously fast with Waddle, Hill, Wilson, and Mostert. I think somebody could come up with a good nickname for, for that group. That is that is a really good one. I Mine is the Bengals receiving core. They're young, mm-hmm. first couple years together. I feel like that one's going to be – you could drum up a lot of excitement for that. A couple other options I went through – the Niners defensive front, but they have so many guys that have changed out of yeah. there. You know, Buckner's been in and out of there. It's really just Armstead and Bosa who are the consistent pieces there. So, and that's part of the issue here is that I think there's so much turnover in the NFL right now with so many players being able to hit free agency and just the amount of roster changes that we see from year to year. It's hard to have a unit that sticks together for so long that they deserve their own nickname. But think about how excited we were about the Broncos secondary last year. And those groups just don't tend, those groups don't tend to stick together for very long anymore. So it's difficult to gain enough traction where you deserve your own longstanding nickname. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I think, one group that has been together a little while, the Bills secondary. But they're I, I not think... I, that. I thought of that one too. But they're mm-hmm. not like a headline grabbing group. You know, like I don't. Yeah, they're so solid all around. But I don't think people are really rushing to give Micah Hyde a Micah Hyde led group a nickname, even though they're really good. I mean, I just think that you need a lot of sizzle as a group True. to to warrant something like this. The Bills are so good together. And it's more than the sum of the parts, but the parts have to be thrilling 
to warrant this type of attention. That's why the Bill or excuse me, the, the Bengals receiving core, it's like, all right, this one I feel like we could get there with just because all of those guys individually are so good, even independent of what they are together. Yeah. Or maybe maybe the commander's four man rush if they could get back the things back together, you know, get back on track, I mean. That would have been my answer at this point last year. And then they disappointed all of us. So I, the other one that I, I was thinking about, we could have done this three or four years ago, would have been the Eagles offensive line. Because that group mm. was together for a while, where it's Lane Johnson, Jason Peters, Brandon Brooks, Jason Kelsey, and whoever your other guard happens to be. So though that that group, I think, would have been the most deserving in a slightly different era. But right now, there just aren't that many groups that have been together for that long. So it gets tough. All right. Last one here. I enjoyed this, and I figured you'd have some interesting insight on this as a Raiders guy who pays a lot of attention to the Raiders. Eric Brignac asks, this being the deep offseason, I figured I'd appreci- you'd appreciate a really weird one. If you were the Raiders, how much draft capital would you be willing to trade in exchange for Mahomes, Herbert, and Wilson all being transported to the NFC? All right. I, th- I think if to get them out of the division and just maybe – place an average quarterback in place of those guys, I would give up at least every first and second round pick for the rest of Mahomes and Herbert's career. Because the, the impact first and second round picks <laughs> for the rest of their career. Because the I think the impact difference the, the difference between Mahomes and Herbert and an average quarterback is worth two very good starters at any position, I think. Assuming you're going to get good quarterback play from Derek Carr, I think you could win if you just have average quarterbacks play for the Chiefs and uh, you know the the Chargers and Broncos. You're probably right. I, I was gonna say like four first round picks. Like your next four first round picks, would you give them up to have all of those guys put in a different conference? But you might be right that it's a first and second round pick if you're actually thinking about the tangible impact and value of what those guys are over an average replacement. Yeah, exactly. And then you'll, you'll always have, you know, I, we, I, you know, I hear you guys talk about Derek Carr a ton as it's just a guy that's just, you know, a, a little out, out of that top, you know, tier of quarterbacks. But if you have, you know, you'll have a quarterback advantage over those guys for the, you know, the rest of uh, the time Derek Carr is playing. So I, I do think it's, it's worth that. I mean, it's just, you know, my, my opinion of Mahomes and Herbert is that high where I think the difference between them and average quarterback is is worth that much. It's a really good answer. It's it's hard to argue with that based on how good those guys are. Because Derek Carr being the fourth best, or depending on what you think of Russell Wilson at this stage, the third best quarterback in his own division, says much more about the division than it says about Derek Carr. Because I think Derek Carr is pretty good. I think if you drop Derek Carr into most divisions in the NFL, he'd probably be the second best or best quarterback when you think about it. I mean, the AFC South, for example. Would Derek Carr be the best quarterback in the AFC South right now? He's better than Davis Mills. He's better than uh, Matt Ryan at, at this point of his career. Um, and it, he's better than Ryan Tannehill. And the fourth is... That's uh, it. So he, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, well, the Jack, it'd be the Jacks. So he's, and he's better than Trevor Lawrence yeah. at this stage. So he'd be the yeah. best quarterback in the AFC yep. South. If you dropped him into... The NFC North right now. He'd probably be the second best quarterback behind Aaron Rodgers, right? Would you rather have Derek Carr than Kirk Cousins? Yes. So that he'd be the second best quarterback in that division. If you dropped him into the NFC East, he'd be the second best quarterback 
behind Dak Prescott, probably. You could make an argument yeah. that he'd be in the come. Pretty much every other division in the league, he'd probably be the second best quarterback at the very worst. And now he mm-hmm. might be the fourth best quarterback in the AFC West. It's a really shitty spot for the Raiders to be in here. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll see th- how how things shake out. But yeah, just you know, ha- just having to play Mahomes twice a year, and then you see Herbert come in and just light the league up the way he has. It, it, it's it's a difficult spot for the Raiders. All right. That's all we got. Ted, thank you very, very much for hopping on to do this, my friend. It's always good to chat with you. Yeah, no problem. That was fun. All right, guys. We will be back a little bit later this week. We are going to do the show that I've been mentioning for the last week and a half. Nate and I are going to talk about Lamar Jackson and Kyle Murray on Wednesday. Very excited to do that. Please come back and check that out. If you could, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It would mean a lot to me. Take some time in the offseason to let us know that you like it. Really, really appreciate that. Please subscribe to The Athletic theathletic.com slash football show you will not regret it so much great stuff coming out every single day including in the off season we'll be back on thursday until then appreciate you guys listening we'll talk to you soon this was the athletic football show